You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak to us. Today's Bible reading is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 to verse 21. Please follow along in your Bibles, and the passage will also be up on the screen. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has the life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin, that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the one that in the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given the un- us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Gracious God, we pray that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your instruction. Shape us more and more into the image of your Son, and by his accomplished work on the cross, give us a deep confidence in our eternal life. Give us a deep assurance of our salvation, all in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. How confident are you as a Christian in the world? How confident are you as a Christian in the world? 
Well, when you spend time with your non-Christian friends, let me ask, do you feel confident as a witness to the gospel? Or, alternatively, do you feel that pressure? That pressure to remain silent, to not speak of the Lord Jesus, to not even mention His name. I don't know about you, but it is so easy to be afraid as a Christian in our world, isn't it? Many of you here work and study in places that aren't just indifferent to the gospel. No, indifference would be great, wouldn't it? No, they're actually hostile to the Lord Jesus. You you might have colleagues who hate the church, managers who mock the Lord Jesus, friends at work for whom Christianity is public enemy number one. What's wrong with our world? Your friends might say, your colleagues might say, your managers might say, religion, Christianity, God. And let's face it, when you live in a world like that, the thought The mere thought of speaking the gospel, or even saying on a Monday morning, I was at church yesterday, let alone being open about your love for the Lord, that can strike fear into our hearts, can't it? Why would I be confident in a world like that? It is why, actually, I encourage young workers, young workers, out yourself as a Christian on day one, first day on the job. Let them know that you believe in the Lord Jesus, because I promise you, it'll only get harder. You see, in a world that is hostile to the Lord Jesus, in a world where the devil seeks to deceive and destroy us, it is so hard to be confident, and it is so easy to be afraid. And do you realize that the more we are afraid, the less we are confident in the world, actually, the more our own faith is eroded, It affects our own hearts. The less we speak of the Lord Jesus, the less we mention His name to our world, the more at risk we actually are of losing Him entirely, of walking away from the Lord, of choosing the world over Jesus. If you do it every day, it makes it so much easier to do forever. So let me ask, how confident are you as a Christian in the world? Today we uh, come to the final verses of 1 John, and the Apostle John has written this letter for what purpose? If you can remember, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He, He wants to assure us of our salvation. He wants to strengthen our confidence in eternity. Because the Christians in the first century, they were at risk of losing it all. They were at risk of being deceived and destroyed. If you remember back in chapter 2, the Gnostics, who John calls the Antichrist, these people, they once identified as believers. But in the end, they walked away. Away from the Lord and away from His people. The Gnostics, these people, these Antichrists, they proved themselves to be false believers. They were denying the humanity of Jesus, and they were denying the reality of sin. But if only it stopped there, because not only that, they were actually seeking to lead the true believers astray. They were trying to deceive them and to lure them away from fellowship with God. So under threat, under pressure, lacking confidence, that's why John has written this letter. He wants to assure them, he wants to assure us, he wants to assure you and me, no, 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 don't worry, you are the true believers. 
You are the true people of God because you have the truth about the Lord Jesus. John wants to strengthen our confidence in our eternity. And let's do a quick recap. He does that right throughout this letter by calling us to do what? To persevere, to remain, to keep on keeping on. Just reflect back, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 in the prologue. What what do we need to do? Keep on living in the joy of Christian fellowship. Chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 17, keep on living in the light of God's holiness. Chapter 2, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 10, keep on living in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 6, keep on living in the truth about Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 7 to chapter 5, verse 5, keep on living in the love of God shown through the death of His Son. Keep on keeping on. And now as he ends this letter, John wants us to keep on living with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the world. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has conquered the world. And that means the victory of Christ gives us confidence in the world out there. And in this passage, John wants us to be confident in the gospel, confident in our prayers, and confident in our protection. Confident in the gospel, confident in our prayers, and confident in our protection. In 1992, a man named Frankie Carrillo Jr. was convicted of murder. You see, what happened was one year earlier, six teenagers were standing outside the front of a house in Los Angeles, and as they stood there, a car drove by and two shots were fired. One of those six boys was gunned down, and he died. And it wasn't long before Carrillo was identified by the police. You see, on the night of the shooting, they showed a picture of Carrillo to one of the eyewitnesses, and that eyewitness confirmed it and said, yes, he's the man. And that eyewitness then told the other five witnesses, yes, I'm sure of it, Carrillo is the culprit. Except for the fact that he wasn't. The eyewitness was wrong. And his false testimony led to a wrongful conviction. Now we say, oh great, in the end, thankfully, the conviction was overturned. But not before Carrillo spent 20 years 20 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. Why? All because of a false testimony. And surely, that's got to undermine your confidence in the justice system, right? If you knew that testimony was unreliable and yet still accepted by the courts, there's no way, no way you could have any confidence in the conviction. And yet for the Christians in the first century, Christians who lived in a world just like ours, friends, can I tell you, confidence was in short supply. Just imagine, they were seeing their family and their friends, one after the other, walk away from the Lord. But that's not it. They were walking away from the Lord and then trying to deceive them from the truth, trying to drag them with them. How in the world could you be confident in a world like that? And that's why in verses 5 to 7, John now calls three witnesses to the stand. Three witnesses to the stand. And thank God, 
unlike the eyewitnesses in the Carrillo case, no, no, these three witnesses, they are credible beyond reasonable doubt. Are you ready? Let's call the three witnesses. First witness, water. Bit strange, isn't it? It's hard for us to figure out exactly what John means here, but if we look at his gospel, John's gospel, every time he uses that phrase, by water, he's talking about Jesus' baptism. And in Jesus' baptism, what happened, for those of you who remember? The Holy Spirit descends and rests upon him. You see, the first great witness to the truth about Jesus is his baptism the moment where he receives the divine stamp of approval, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Why should we be confident in the gospel? Why should we be confident in our eternal life? Because in his baptism, Jesus was approved by God. John now calls the second witness, the second witness, blood. If water represents the beginning of Jesus' ministry, then blood now represents its climax, the death of the Lord Jesus. You see, for the Christians in the first century, this would have been massively important. But the Gnostics at that time were claiming that Jesus, he wasn't truly human. But here, the great witness of his blood is that Jesus physically died. He actually died. And because he physically died, you and I should be confident that he actually atoned for the sins of the world. We can be confident in the gospel because in his death, Jesus died in our place. By his blood, Jesus forgave our sin. Third and final witness, the Spirit. The Spirit. Now, we didn't understand just how significant this is. That The Gnostics at that time, they were claiming to know the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be with the Spirit, to be in touch with the Spirit. They, in fact, claimed that the Spirit was speaking to them. So now, just imagine, if, if your enemies on that side are saying, no, 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 we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is telling us not Jesus, now John calls who to the stand? The Spirit. It's as if he's flipped one of their own witnesses. That the Spirit's now a hostile witness against the Gnostics who thought that he was on their side. But in fact, the Spirit was always on Jesus' side. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will testify about me. So often, uh, it's easy for us to focus so much on the Holy Spirit, but never speak about the Lord Jesus. But we mustn't divide the two persons of the Trinity along with the Father, because the Holy Spirit is a witness. He points us to Jesus. He's telling us, don't look at me, look at him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So there we have it, John's three witnesses, water, blood, and spirit, all consistent in their testimony, without a cigarette paper between them, all testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. But have you ever seen one of those movies where just before the judge hands down his verdict, just before the judge hands down his decision, what happens? A junior lawyer, someone like Mike Ross or something like that, they burst through the courtroom doors and they shout, you can't actually do this in court, they shout out, Your Honor, stop. 
the prosecution calls one final witness. And it's not just any witness. No, no, it's our star witness. It's the witness with the smoking gun that'll win the case. What happens, this always happens, the defense objects, objection. He was never included on the list. The judge says, I'll allow it. Then what happens? Into the courtroom, up to the stand, walks God himself. God him. Imagine that. For those of you who work in a courtroom, God walks up to the stand, right? You can't really get a witness with greater character or credibility than God, can you, right? You can't get any evidence with greater probative value than the first-hand testimony of God himself. Verse 9 asks, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. Stands to reason, because it's God's testimony that is given about his son. And in that moment, the defense says, yep, okay, we've lost. Friends, why should we be confident that Jesus is the Son of God? How can we be so confident of our eternal life and our salvation in a world that is set against him, in a world that so often seeks to undermine our faith, undermine our assurance, and erode our trust? Because in his baptism, Jesus bears the stamp of divine approval. In his death, Jesus secured our eternal salvation. By his spirit, Jesus is who he says he is. And according to God himself in verse 12, he has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You might not be a Christian. You might not call yourself a Christian, but you might believe in God. You might sit there and go, I've been around church for a while, and you know what? I'm still not sold on Jesus. I'm still not sure about Jesus, but I am convinced about God. I know he exists, and I know that whoever this God is, I need to follow him. If that's you, in this passage, God is telling you today, you can stop your search, because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is my son. See, if you say that you believe in God, but you're not sure about Jesus, well, take God's word for it. He's telling you, if you want to follow me, follow my son. Verse 12 says, the one who has the son has life. And I want to let you know, that person can be you. You you can actually be received into this eternal fellowship of love with God and all these people. You can actually enjoy the forgiveness of your sins full and free. If you say you believe in God, but you're not sure about Jesus, God is telling you, you can be sure today. Believe in my son. And don't wait any longer. Make today that day. Make today that day. You know, for us Christians, doesn't it sometimes feel as if the whole world is lining up all of its witnesses against Jesus? Who do they wheel out? Who do they call to the stand? The cultural elite. My university law lectures. Public commentators. And even our family and friends. And it's as if one by one they line up, they submit their testimony, and what do they say? Jesus is wrong. Jesus is oppressive. Jesus is evil. 
you can't trust Jesus. And if we live in a world like that, if we're surrounded by family and friends and a university and a workplace just like that, it's hard to be confident, isn't it? John knows it's hard. And that's why he's written this passage. Because when we stand against the world and when we face its line of witnesses, brothers and sisters, do not forget, we have a far greater cloud of witnesses We have the water, we have the blood, we have the Spirit, we have God Himself. You and I, we can be confident in the gospel because whatever the world around us might say, God has spoken and His testimony is true. Don't believe them. Believe the Son. And you know what, friends? Because we can be confident in the gospel, that means that you and I can be confident in our prayers as well. Just look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Isn't that amazing? God hears our prayers and we can be confident in it. What a wonderful privilege for us to pray. What a wonderful confidence it is for us to pray. I want you to hear the words of Peter Adam. This is what he writes. Jesus died so that you can pray. Jesus died to win you access to God. Free access to God at any time, at any place, and in any situation. Isn't that wonderful? Prayer is one of the chief benefits of the gospel. But so often, I don't know about you, confidence is the last emotion that I feel when I pray. So often my prayers feel futile and my prayers feel foolish. In fact, let me be honest, when when we pray, it can often feel a bit like we're shouting aloud in the middle of an empty forest, can't it? Screaming aloud at the top of our lungs with absolutely no confidence that anyone is there to hear us. But John says, no. No, no, no. Because we can be confident in the gospel, because we can, we can be confident that we have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we can be confident when we pray to God. We can be confident that not only will God hear our prayers, we can be confident that he'll answer them as well. That's pretty good. Now, let me be clear. Let's be clear what this verse doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean that God will answer any prayer for whatever we want. John writes, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's God's will, not my will. So it seems then that John is speaking about something far more specific than just any of our prayers for whatever we want. And this is what I would like to submit to you. This is what I think you're saying. He's assuring us that we should pray with confidence in our forgiveness. He's assuring us that we should pray with confidence in our forgiveness. Let me show you how I get there, right? Just look at what John writes in the very next verse. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, same word, and God will give life to him. Can you see what John is saying? That the focus of the prayers here is not on anything and everything, 
but it zeroes in on the forgiveness of our sins. But if you read this, when James was reading it so well, surely you heard this passage and it just came up against a roadblock, right? But John, he compares two different kinds of sin. On the one hand, there's sin that leads to death. And on the other hand, there's sin that doesn't lead to death. And you sort of think, what's the difference? What's going on? Well, verse 16 says that the sin that doesn't lead to death is committed by a fellow believer, another Christian. So from that, we can infer that the sin that doesn't lead to death is any sin committed by a true believer. Because our sins are atoned for by the death of Jesus. Our sins are covered by His blood. We will not be led to death by our sin. This sin doesn't lead to death because of that great promise in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is great news. Do you see what he's saying? Our sin... The sin of the genuine believer, the sin of the, of the child of God is sin that doesn't lead to death. Because Jesus died so that we might be forgiven. That's good news for you and me. It means that there's always hope of forgiveness, confidence and surety and a guarantee of forgiveness of our every sin. But on the flip side, it means that the sin that does lead to death is the sin of the unbeliever. The sin of the Gnostics, the sin of the Antichrist, the rejection, the wholesale rejection of the gospel. Just look at verse 16. This is where John writes something really awkward for every preacher. There is sin that leads to death. Think about that rejection of the gospel. And John writes, I'm not saying you should pray about that. I'm not saying you should pray for that. And you sit there and go, really? Really? Is John actually telling us to not pray for our non-Christian friends? Is he saying that I just wasted my time praying for my friend who walked away from the Lord? Is he saying that Augustine's mother wasted all those years praying for God to save her son? Now, I'll admit, it's not an easy sentence to figure out. But in the context of this letter, I suspect that this is what John's saying. He's not just writing about any non-Christian. He's writing about the Antichrist. Those people who deliberately, willfully, intentionally turn their back on Jesus. Those people who have wholesale rejected the gospel. And while he says that we can pray for them, I think he's also saying, look, their hearts are hard. They've chosen their path. And in one sense, there's nothing more that you can do for them. Please don't miss here, John. He's not saying you shouldn't pray for them, but I think in one sense he's adjusting our expectations. He's helping us see that true life and forgiveness are only found in Jesus. You see, that's why, that's why we should pray not only for ourselves, but for one another when we stumble into sin. If you see someone else, another brother or sister here, stumbling into sin, walking into sin, I hope you're not just confronting them. I hope that you're actually praying for them. Praying with the confidence that God will forgive us, sanctify us, and preserve us forever. You see, friends, we should pray with confidence in our forgiveness. But when I stop to think about my own confidence, my own prayers, my own assurance of forgiveness, 
I suspect that I am not actually as confident as I ought to be. And I suspect many of us are not as confident as we ought to be. There is some part of us, I think, which doesn't really believe that God will forgive our sins. And let me tell you what happens, all right? If we're not confident that God will forgive us, there's only one thing left to do. We'll fake it. We'll try to live perfect lives on the outside where forgiveness is not necessary. We'll engage in this superficial, almost artificial godliness that pretends just like the Gnostics that we have no sin or that we have not sinned because we're too afraid to approach the Lord to be forgiven. We're too afraid to be honest about our sin before the Lord because we are not convinced that he would actually forgive us. So what do we do? We fake it. Too many of us are not honest about our sin because we are not confident in our forgiveness. We are not honest about our sin because we are not confident in our forgiveness. But I want you to hear what Martin Luther writes. Be a sinner and sin boldly. But believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. This is one of those quotes where you really want to have everything together. You don't just want to read the first part and forget the second part, right? But, but can you see what he's getting at, right? You're a sinner. And so am I. Why are we trying to pretend that we're not? No, be honest about it. Be bold about it. But be even more bold about the fact that we have forgiveness through our prayers in the Lord Jesus. He's not encouraging us to sin, but he's asking us to be boldly and brutally honest about our sin. You see, friends, however certain we may be of our sin, we can be infinitely more certain of God's grace. And when we are confident in the gospel, we can be so much more confident in our forgiveness, so much more confident in our prayers. And I want to let you know this final thing. We can be so much more confident in our protection. Confident in our protection. There was a time, believe it or not, where I didn't work as a pastor. It wasn't that long ago. I used to wake up in the, every morning, catch a train into the city, and walk down and enter that terrible building, 333 Collins Street, every Monday to Friday. And I distinctly remember, every Monday morning, I would have one key feeling. I would feel vulnerable. Vulnerable. But you see, I just came off my high at church, right, on Sunday. I felt protected from the world and protected from the devil. Church was a safe haven, right? But as soon as Monday came around, it was as if that spiritual force field that guarded my soul was taken down. And suddenly I felt so vulnerable in a world so hostile, I'd step into the lift, go up to level 21 and feel like, here we go, right? It's just a different world. And you know that feeling, right? When you're at the office with no Christian friends around, you're surrounded by your work friends, you think, life feels totally different here than out there. And you know it because when you get to the end of your week at Friday, 8 p.m., depending on what time you finish or what job you have, you rush out the door, and the moment you leave those gates of 333 Collins Street, just that force field comes back around you, you're like, yes, I'm safe again. I felt so vulnerable in a world so hostile. And verse 19 tells us why. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one, right? You've felt it before, surely. 
When you're at university or work, you feel that tug, that sway, that pull of the devil that wants to lead you away from the Lord. Maybe you've felt or feared the attacks of the devil, his condemnation, his judgment, his temptation. We live in a world that is under the sway of the devil, so it's no wonder that we feel so vulnerable. And yet in verse 18, just look at this beautiful assurance, friends. We know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God, that is the Lord Jesus, keeps us. And the evil one does not touch us. Just Say one more time and just dwell on that. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps us. And the evil one does not touch us. Isn't that so amazing? Isn't it so? I have no reason to feel vulnerable. It could be a raw nerve or traumatic memory for some of us. You, me, you be the judge. High school, a kingdom for some and a prison for others. You're there and you're, that large bully approaches you and you feel so vulnerable and you just don't know what to do. You quake, you run, you hide. And in that moment, in that moment, your older brother comes. He steps between you and that bully. He puts his arm around you. He guards you, protects you, so that not even the biggest bully can even lay a finger on me or us or you be the judge. Why can we be confident in our protection? Because our older brother, the other one who has been born of God, comes and keeps us, protects us not from the bully but from the devil. We can be confident that Jesus has conquered the world. We can be confident in the face of lies and deception because verse 20 tells us the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We're safe in the truth. We're guarded in the truth. We're secure in the truth. We can't be led astray. We can't be deceived or fooled, not because of our ingenuity. No, there's not much of that. It's all because of Jesus' victory over the world. And now John ends this letter with the most comforting assurance of all. You see, not only do we have the truth, verse 20 says we are in the true one. That is, we are in his son, Jesus Christ. We are brought into and included within that fellowship of divine love. We are safe in the deepest fellowship of love, the love between God the Father and God the Son. That's where we are. Friends, there's nowhere safer than in the love of God. There's nowhere safer than in the love of God. For Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And if we are in him, then you ought to be able to sing in just a moment, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Some Christians are so afraid of the devil. We ought to be on our guard. We ought to be vigilant. But some Christians are so afraid of the devil. We think that God and the devil are somehow equal powers in conflict, and we have no confidence about who will win. And if that's the worldview that you occupy, 
If you think that we're not sure who will win before God and the devil, I'll tell you what will happen. We'll resort to pagan superstition to try and strengthen God's arm in the fight against Satan. We'll organize a 24-hour prayer chain around the world. We'll hang crucifixes all around our house. We'll anoint objects with so-called holy water just so that the devil might not touch us. But John says, no, 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 no. You're putting your confidence in all the wrong places. Don't put your confidence in more voices, a wooden cross or ordinary water. Put your confidence in Jesus. Jesus has already defeated the devil. He's already conquered the world. Do not be afraid. You and I, we need to have such a great confidence that though the armies of hell marshal their forces against us, God will not even allow a single thread of our hair on our heads to be lost. It may be lost for more natural reasons, but not for that, right? Don't be afraid. He won't even lay a finger on you because Jesus has conquered the world. I would love to end the sermon right there. I'd love to end this book right there. It's a great part, isn't it? And then John just manages to, you know, go negative at the end. But I want you to show, I want you to see why actually this final verse really matters. John ends on a sober warning. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And you wonder after such a strong and uplifting assurance, why would he end this sermon on such a dark note? Well, I wonder if he's warning us in all our many reasons for confidence, in all our many reasons for certainty and assurance. Don't drop your guard. Don't put yourself in the pathway of idolatry. Don't make yourself a big target or vulnerable to the lies of this world or the attacks of Satan. If you know that spending time with those particular friends is going to lead you away from the Lord, take a step back. If you know that being in that relationship or friendship is stopping you from honoring the Lord, rethink that relationship or friendship. If you know that accepting that job will make it impossible for you to join with a fellowship of believers and be strengthened and nourished as a believer, do you really want to take it? We live in a world that is dangerous. We are both vulnerable and yet at the same time invincible, right? We are protected by God and yet God still calls us to keep up our guard. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Friends, as we end this brief journey through 1 John, my prayer for us as a church is that we might be on guard that we might guard ourselves from idols. But even more than that, that we might ground ourselves in this assuring reality. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. It's all in Christ alone. Let me pray. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. We know, gracious Heavenly Father, 
that nothing can ever separate us from your love. For the Lord Jesus has paid it all. The Lord Jesus has died in our place. The Lord Jesus was affirmed by you. The Lord Jesus is certified by and confirmed by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is your only begotten Son in whom we have life eternal. So this day, God, give us confidence in that. And may we be certain in our prayers for forgiveness. And may we be certain in our protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. All in Christ alone. Amen.